with Obadiah, you have two options, really, in how to date this book. I take the older option, which is 845, but I have to admit that that date is disputed because remember last week when we went through our history timeline, Israel's history kind of repeats in terms of they're unfaithful to God. God lets surrounding nations come in and attack, conquer, destroy them. And then, but he, he brings them to the brink of total destruction once and then revives them. They continue to be unfaithful. So then he goes through that cycle again until they are sent into exile. And so some of the stuff that Obadiah is talking about, you, you can't be 100% sure if he's talking about the first time this stuff happened or the second time. stuff like this happened, I'm convinced that the older date is right, that 845 BC uh, is the time of this. It's after the Edomite revolt. So if you're reading through the book of Kings and you're reading Israel's history, you get to 2 Kings 8, and that's when it tells us about the Edomite revolt. I think Obadiah occurs just after that. It could be as late as the 400s, because the Nabataeans will later destroy Edom uh, or just before that event. So I'm just saying this is disputed. If you read a commentary or some book on the Minor Prophets or Obadiah, don't be surprised if it suggests a different date, even as far forward as 400 BC. But I'm, myself, I am, I'm confident enough that this is about 845. Because the historical event taking place at the time is when Edom breaks away from the kingdom. And so God is going to talk to his people in light of that. Obadiah is a really easy book to teach from because it's it's a prophecy that's very helpfully written in two parts. Part one of Obadiah is a teaching about God. It teaches a truth about God. And then part two of Obadiah teaches you how to apply that truth about God. So it really is designed in a helpful way for somebody who wants to teach the book. The background situation that you have got to understand from Israel's history and timeline to understand Obadiah is the relationship between Israel and Edom. Do you remember genealogically who the Edomites are? (laughs) Yeah, they're the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. And you'll see the text remind the reader of this by referring to Israel as what? In Obadiah, what name is used to talk to Israel? It's Jacob. It refers to Israel as Jacob. Why does it refer to Israel as Jacob? Because it wants to remind you that Jacob and Esau were brothers and that Israel and Edom were brothers. And that's going to be kind of the meta narrative, the underlying tension of the book of Obadiah. In verse 10, how does it describe Edom? To your brother, Jacob. This is talking about nations, right? Not individuals, nations. The violence done to your brother. It wants you to think of Edom as a brother nation to Israel. This was a brother relationship 
filled with conflict. Do y'all remember, can you think through, going all the way back to Jacob and then moving forward to today, what are some reasons why there would be tension and conflict between the Edomites and the Jacobites? <laughs> he just, the selling of the birthright. You could go all the way back to that. And then after the Exodus, Edom did not allow passage through her territory. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of tension between these two lines. Israel had lots of enemies, but these three things made the relationship with the Edomites particularly terrible. The long term nature. This goes all the way back to the selling of the birthright. This is an old feud. The intensity. This was, you deceived me out of my birthright. This was, you didn't allow us to pass and we could have been slaughtered because you refused to give us safe passage. This was, you were supposed to be my brother. So the closeness of the enemy, that sense of betrayal is a really big deal. So that leads us to this first, the major theme of the book. God's enemies will be destroyed and his kingdom will be advanced. Full stop. If you are an enemy of God, you have big problems because God's enemies will be destroyed and his kingdom will be advanced. And what Obadiah teaches us here in the beginning are some things about God's enemies. So if you look at uh, the first nine verses of Obadiah, you see all of these behaviors that God says characterize or typify his enemies. The first one is pride. Look at all the prideful language. Look at verse 3. They think that they are impenetrable because of rugged terrain and steep canyons and fortresses up on a cliff. They think nobody can harm them. And what's the verse 3 is a great uh, verse about pride because it also shows you the result of pride. What's the result of pride from verse 3? Self-deception. The result of pride is self-deception. We think we're invincible. That is a very dangerous thing to think because it is always, always wrong. And then beginning in verse 4, you have God's response to their pride. I will bring you down. Verse 4. Verse 5. You'll have nothing left. Stripped of her possessions. All those things in which... She takes such pride. Look at verse 7. Her allies, her friends, turn against her. Will even break covenants, break treaties. And then verses 8 and 9, her resources will be ineffective. This is how God describes the pride of his enemies and the result of that pride. And uh, in all the minor prophets... It's as we're dealing with in John, you have a one level on which something is true, 
But there's always a spiritual parallel attached to these things. And it's not hard to think about the spiritual parallel here where they think they have these mighty fortresses that protect them and keep them safe and nothing can ever go wrong. And physically, God will allow them to be overtaken and all of those advantages will fail them. That's a pretty easy spiritual parallel to draw, right? We think we are strong in our own strengths. We think we are wise in our own wisdom. We think we've got control of this. And if God needs to, if you align yourself as an enemy of God, he will strip all of that away, render it completely ineffective, cause your friends to betray you. God will do whatever it takes to bring judgment on pride, whether that pride is military or spiritual. And that's what he does with unbelievers. He has, in order to to regenerate someone, to convert someone, God has to strip them of the pride that comes from this false sense of security. We're going to see this in Jesus' interactions today with the religious rulers. He has to take away the things that you use to prop yourself up. Because once those things are gone, that will bring you to your knees. You will see your need of God, and then you will be willing to receive what he has to offer. Uh, In the sermon today, I'll point to, uh, in this text, they don't think they need the freedom Jesus offers because they don't believe they're slaves. It's like a familiar text in Mark 2, where they don't think they need a physician because they don't think they're sick. And it, like, you just, it's the self-deception of pride. I don't have any need for what God is offering. I'm doing just fine. And that's what they're saying to God is we're doing just fine. Look at these mighty fortresses we have. Look at this stuff. Look at our treaties and our covenants with other nations. We're doing just fine. And God says, here is how I deal with my enemies. I make them not fine. I make them realize that they are not okay. I cure them of that self-deception. So that's the first theme of the book. God's enemies will be destroyed and his kingdom will be advanced. Second theme of the book, God's enemies are those who persecute his people. So we've described God's enemies in terms of their thinking and their behavior. But how do we categorize God's enemies? How does God think about someone as his enemy? What do they do that sets them in opposition to God? Well, one thing is they persecute his people. So this is verses 10 through 14. In your reading of the book, could you figure out what Edom's sin was? As you look at 10 through 14, can you figure out what they did specifically in history exactly they took advantage of a time of weakness so they were under external attack Israel was and Edom took advantage so verse 11 did not help verse 12 rejoiced over Judah's downfall verse 13 entered into the plunder 14 they turned those trying to escape, they turned them over to the enemy so that they would become slaves. That's what Edom did. 
And they did it in a time of weakness. They took advantage of the situation, which is, again, back to why this relationship is so pernicious, is what was supposed to be such a close relationship ends up as this kind of ultimate betrayal. This is what God sees that causes him to categorize the Edomites as his enemies, not just Judah's enemies, but his enemies. And so the question for God's people, whenever they face harsh persecution, and this is really horrible, what Judah goes through. The question that God's people ask when this kind of things thing happens is, one, does God even see? Does God see that this is happening? These verses, 11 through 14, make it very clear. God says to his people, I saw exactly what they did. Not one detail of Edom's sin escaped my sight. I know exactly that they didn't help you and that they took advantage of the situation, and that they were excited that you were captured, and that they participated in the plunder, and that they turned you over to be slaves. I saw it all. And so God's people, going through a time of emotional crisis from all this hardship, say to God, do you see this? And God says, I see every last thing. So what's the second question God's people ask whenever we're enduring persecution? What are you going to do about it? You see it. Are you going to do anything about it? And that's verses 15 and 16. What is God going to do about it? He's going to judge his enemies. Verse 15 is about divine retribution. You will reap what you have sown. This will come back to you. Verse 16, the drinking, drinking from the cup of wrath. This is going to be a common metaphor. It's more than a metaphor, but I'll start there. It's a common metaphor in the prophets of drinking because everybody can kind of associate the the relationship of how you feel and drinking. You drink to be satisfied. Water satisfies your thirst when you're thirsty. You also drink for enjoyment. Wine makes the heart glad. So this idea of drinking being a positive activity, but you're going to see again and again in the prophets, and especially in apocalyptic prophecy, that this drinking doesn't actually satisfy it makes you more and more thirsty and it act, and it ends up killing you because you end up drinking from the cup of God's wrath because you just uh, more and more self-satisfaction is your goal but more and more wrath is what you receive so you look at verse 16 they filled themselves up drinking of the celebration drinking of the joy they had over the adversity that came to their enemies. They filled themselves up drinking on this prideful gloating about what was happening to Judah. And uh, they participated in the desecration of the temple. And as they are being so filled up, drinking all of this in, they will drink until they are drunk dead. 
because they are drinking from the cup of God's wrath. The metaphor will describe a cup. And it's the cup that the nations will drink of. This cup of God's wrath that initially tastes sweet to them. That sweetness is their satisfaction in persecuting God's people. That sweetness is the enjoyment they get out of rejecting God and his Christ and his law and harming his people. And it's initially sweet to them. And so they keep drinking and they keep drinking and they keep drinking. But at the bottom are the bitter dregs of death because this is the cup of God's wrath and they will drink until they are dead. There's stages of it. I mean, it's, it's a metaphor, right? But uh, it describes stages where you become sick. It describes stages where you lose everything because this is divine retribution. This is, this is a personal God being personally offended that you are persecuting his people. And so it's not a you reap what you sow in a karma sense. What goes around comes around. It's you reap what you sow in. You told him that you hate his people and you rejoice in their suffering. How will God respond to that? I mean, think about how we as parents respond when you see somebody pick on one of your kids. And we can pick on our kids. But those other jerk kids can't pick on my kid. That's, that's a human parent being mad. How does a heavenly father feel that this person that he created in his image, this person that he loved so much, he sent his son to die for them, and then one of his enemies comes along and persecutes that child and rejoices in the day of that person's calamity? A heavenly father does not take kindly to that. And so they will drink from the cup of God's wrath. They will be recipients of God's judgment. So that's result number one. What is God going to do about it? He's going to judge his enemies. He is going to uh, punish them out of his wrath for their evil. The second thing God is going to do is 17 through 21. He's going to deliver his people. As much as we find joy and satisfaction out of people who do evil, reaping what they have sown, that doesn't really do anything for us. That doesn't get us out of the trial, the persecution. We need to be delivered. And so in this case, the enemies of God's people will be destroyed. Verse 18, the total destruction of Edom. This persecution that's coming on you from the Edomites will stop because he will destroy the Edomites. Verse 20, they'll get back what uh, what was taken from them. They will repossess the land that they lost. And even more, verse 21, they'll occupy enemy territory, meaning they will get more than they originally had. God will give more. I heard a great sermon this week. A friend preached great sermon from the book of Job. And one of the things that he pointed out was that God, God deals with Job's enemy, Satan. Satan does not have the authority to bring more destruction and chaos into Job's life. God puts an end to that. And God also restores what Job had and more. 
he gives him more. And this is the pattern of God dealing with the enemies of his people, is that he judges the enemies of his people, he puts them in their place, gives them what they deserve, he restores his people, and his people come out the better for it, more than what they had before. We'll talk more about that as we talk about application in a little bit, but that is a, that's an important thing to keep in mind about uh, hardship and adversity and suffering that comes from God is that all three of those things will end up being true. Uh, so God delivers his people. That's the second result here. 